As we're going through our study in 1 Thessalonians, uh, we came to uh, the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, here over last week and this week. And uh, I, I, I sort of broke it into two parts because I think that's what Paul's doing here. So last week, we had prepared for Christ's second coming part one. Uh, today is prepared for Christ's second coming part two. And where that's coming from is at the end of chapter 3. If you look at chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says to the Thessalonian church, Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So if you are here last week, you recall that that was our passage that we focused in on and we talked about how to live in such a way as to be prepared with the expectation of the imminent return of Christ uh, Paul has, has two exhortations for the church. He says to be to be prepared for that day, that the coming of the Lord. There's a positive statement that I want to pray for and encourage you in, and then there's a negative one. And last week was the positive statement, which was do this, love one another. Excel in loving one another. And then this week, we're going to turn now to the second part of that exhortation, which was stated negatively, which, by the way, I want to, I want to uh, define that again. When I say negatively, I don't mean that it's got a negative value judgment. I just mean that it's, a, it's sort of a don't rather than a do. Right? And the second part of, of the exhortation comes in chapter 4. Here's the, here's the central idea. Verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. So the main idea is we're, we're to be pleasing God with the way that we live our lives. This is, this is what it means to be prepared as He comes again. To live in such a way that we excel still more in a life pleasing to God. And then the, 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 the don't then is verse 2. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. So that's our focus this morning is on that command, right? That exhortation. And therefore, our part two of being prepared for Christ's second coming is to abstain from sexual immorality. This is an important topic. It's a difficult topic. It's an extremely relevant topic. And it's one in which what God has to say to us this morning is something that we need to hear and submit to and recognize that it's countercultural to even who we are. So with that said, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to speak to us this morning through His Word as we dive into this exhortation. Father, again, we, we, as we've been singing, Lord, we, we come with, with that foundation of, of remembering, Lord, that You have sent Your Son for us. And we pray as we just sang, Lord, that You would lead us to the cross this morning. Lead us to a place of, of laying ourselves down and, and ridding ourselves of ourselves because we belong to You. And Lord, as we belong to You, Lord, we, that, that is, there's a blessing, there's an there's a incredible um, opportunity to us as we belong to You in that we have been remade by You to live as You created us to live. No longer under the power of sin, but in the freedom of life that Christ alone can give. And so Lord, our desire this morning is that as, as we just read here, Your will is our sanctification, Lord. Help us to know what that means and to, and to pursue You as we pursue sanctification. Make us a holy people. And Lord, to the extent that, that what is said this morning by Your Word and by my preaching, Lord, is, is difficult teaching, I just pray, Lord, that You'd give us eyes to hear and see You alone. What You say. And to know that You're good. So we submit ourselves to You. And we pray these things in expectation of Your Spirit's work in us. And in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Let's read the text. 
1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1-8 through 8 is what we're looking at this morning. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. So as we look at that text this morning, what, what we're going to do is we're going to ask four questions of it. Um, this is kind of how we're going to exegete it as we look at these, these four key things. The first one is this. He starts off by saying, this is, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So let's, let's ask a question. What, what does that mean? What is sanctification? Right? And then in that, or from that, he then talks about that they abstain from sexual immorality. I think it's important that we define that. What, is, what does he mean by that? What, is, what are the readers understanding him to say when he talks about sexual immorality? The third question is then, what are Paul's exhortations on sexual immorality or for sexual immorality? And then finally, we'll look at this. And what is a biblical view of sex? What's our hope? What's our hope in Christ in these things? All right? So those are the four questions. If you didn't write them all down yet, don't worry. They're going to come back up. I'm going to put the first one up here as our, our first topic. What is sanctification? What is sanctification? Notice again from the central idea of verse 1, which tells us that we ought to excel. Uh, that's what the NASB says. Excel still more in a life pleasing to God. Here he's saying that you would, that you would abound more and more, that you would grow more and more, right? However we want to uh, translate that. That's, that's the, that's the central idea that we're growing and abounding more in a life that's pleasing to God. And he gives them the reason for that exhortation in verse 3 saying, Something very powerful. He says, this is the will of God. When, 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 when the Word of God says, this is the will of God, our ears should perk up. Like, okay, this is important. And then he says, this is the will of God. Your sanctification. Sanctification is the will of God for His people. So again, we have to ask the question, what does that word mean? What's the meaning of sanctification? Well, the, the word is, it simply means this. It, it's, it's to be set apart as holy. The will of God for His people is that they are set apart, set apart from the world, set apart from what they were, as holy. And we, I think, can better understand sanctification, and often it helps us understand that the concept by pairing it with the idea of justification. Right? Justification and sanctification. If we understand those two things, and, and, and the difference between them and how they work together, it helps us understand better what sanctification is. So justification is this. Justification is the once and for all declaration that we've been saved from the penalty of sin. Okay? You are, you are justified. It is a once and for all declaration through our repentance and faith. We as Christians have been. It's a, it's a past tense thing. It's happened already and it has present abiding results. You have been declared righteous in Christ. So if you're a Christian, you are justified. You have been declared righteous. We're justified by Jesus' perfect obedience and acceptance and fully satisfying offering for our sin. That's justification, right? That's the first, that's the first thing that happens when we place our faith in Christ. Sanctification then is not what we're saved from, but what we're saved to. It's what we're saved to. Because we're now justified in Christ, we've been freed from the power of sin to now live holy lives. We've been freed up to now live in the newness of life that Jesus brings. So we're, we're justification is a, is a one-time declaration. Sanctification is the ensuing and ongoing process of becoming more and more 
like Christ. Another way to say that is this. It's about a progression of spiritual growth into Christ-like holiness. So when Paul says, this is the will of God for you, he's speaking to those who have been justified, and he's saying the will of God is your ongoing process of becoming more and more like Christ. That's why he says in the verse preceding that, that you excel still more, that you abound more and more in this life that's pleasing to God. In Ephesians 4, Paul, uh, he, he, he sort of gives a, a further clarity and definition to this growth process. And he puts it like this. He's talking about within the context of the church and how we've been given gifts and we're to build one another up. And this is what he says. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. You see the process involved there? That, that we're continually growing and we're encouraging one another in the Word of God and by the gifts that He's given to us so that we will attain to this maturity, this mature manhood in Christ. He says, and this is so that you will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So that, 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 the, that the power of the world and of sin would no longer have sway, would have less and less sway on you. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. We're becoming more and more like Him. The idea here is, a, is one of trajectory, right? And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. Old and new, what? What's passed away and what's come? Well, the answer to that question is humanity. Your old humanity is gone. The old way to be human is passed away. Behold, a new way to be human is come. To be in Christ is to, is to, is to be in a new way to be human. And I think one of the great passages that kind of helps us understand that whole concept, what is this, this old humanity and new humanity, what's the transfer from one to the other look like, is actually in Romans chapter 5. And I want to actually keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians and turn there because I want to show this to you. I think it's a, it's a really helpful and important way for us to understand this idea of, of going from the old to the new. What we see in Romans chapter 5 is Paul talking about the, the contrast between Adam and Jesus and our identification in each one. Adam being the first human being who was created, Adam being uh, the father of all of us, sinned. And by that sin, we're all then identified with that that sin is imputed to all of humanity. He says that here in verse uh, 14. Look down at the text there. It gets Romans chapter 5. Actually, look at verse, uh, look at verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin comes to the world through Adam and it spreads to all of us, to every one of us. We all sin in Adam. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. He's saying again there that Adam's sin is, is imputed to, it's counted to, it leads to everybody. We in Adam are guilty as Adam is guilty. Look back at verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So there's two important things that we see in verse 14. One, that we see that death, the penalty of sin, reigned. Beginning from Adam, and it carries through all the way into all mankind. From Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression. It's not that our sin was exactly what Adam did, but the, but the death and the penalty of the sin is carried over because we're all guilty in sin. That's the first thing. But then the second thing is that we get this hint that Adam was a type of the one who is to come. And here's the contrast between Adam and Jesus. We have a first Adam who was a type of a second Adam to come. Verse 14 again. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, 
who is a type of the one who was to come. And here we go. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So here's, here's, here's the, the very simple way, uh, the simple point of what he's saying here. He's saying you, as humanity, you're all identified in Adam. We're all sinful, identified with, with the fall of Adam and Eve, our first parents, and it, it spreads to everybody. So that by that one man, that one transgression, we're all, we're all in the same boat and pot. But then he's a type of another to come who by his one act would unite all things and identify all. And that's Jesus. And so by Jesus' act of righteousness and by his death for us and resurrection for us, those who are in Christ have been identified with Him. No longer identified by the sinfulness of Adam, but identified now by the righteousness of Jesus. And then he says in verse 1-4 through of chapter 6, the next few verses, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried and therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So to be identified with Adam is to no longer uh, is to walk in death, but to be identified in Jesus is to now walk in life. So here's what he's saying here. Sanctification then is moving away from identification with Adam towards identification with Jesus. It's a new way of living. It's a new way to be human. When the Bible talks about being born again, that's the picture. It's what we're born again. We're recreated to be. That's sanctification. So here's the question then. What's Paul's concern here for our sanctification? What does it look like to live a new way to be human? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, back in our passage, verse 3, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So, so what Paul's saying here, and get this, it's important, Part of living in the new way to be human in Jesus, then, is to have a whole new approach to sex and sexuality. That's what he's saying. Now, kind of follow that. We're going to come back to that, that idea of, 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 of new humanity as a, as a, in, a, in our approach to sex and sexuality. But at this point, we have to ask the second question so we understand exactly what he's talking about. What is sexual immorality, then? If we're to abstain from, which means to avoid, to, 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 to put away sexual immorality, what's, what's he mean? Well, anyone familiar with biblical Greek probably knows that the word translated as sexual immorality in the New Testament is the word porneia. That's the Greek word. And that sounds familiar, of course, because that's the word from which we get our modern terms porn, pornography, uh, pornographic, right? Porneia was a, a broadly defined word in the Greek, and it, it, was, it was defined as any kind of sexual thought or activity that was contrary to the biblical principle that sex is created for and only permitted within the covenant of marriage. Porneia is, is anything outside of the biblical principle that sex was created for and only permitted within the covenant 
of marriage, and specifically the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. We'll get to that as we look at some of the texts a little bit later. But here's what I want us to understand. We also have to keep in mind that sexual norms vary from society to society. So for example, Jesus uses the word porneia in His ministry as He's talking to, of course, the Jews, right? His ministry in, 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 in Palestine, in Israel, in Jerusalem. He's, he's, he's usually referring to, when He uses the word, He's usually referring to adultery, which would be sex outside of marriage, or and fornication, which is sex before marriage. When, when he uses the word porneia, those are the concepts that he's talking around. And he doesn't specifically reference other forms of sexual immorality, which is, a, which is something that people will often say, well, Jesus never talked about this. Jesus never talked about that. He, there's a reason for that. He doesn't reference other forms of sexual immorality because they were already clearly understood within the Mosaic Law which talked about all kinds of different forms of sexuality. It was already very understood within Jewish context and society that that's what porneia meant. So he doesn't have to be very specific about that. Everybody kind of knew. They had a common understanding that anything outside of God's created design for marriage between a man and a woman was included in the concept of porneia that Jesus was talking about. Now Jesus does specifically talk to them about adultery and fornication. And the reason for that, even though those were also clearly understood to be immoral, is that they were still the most common sexual sins in Jewish society. They weren't sexually pure just because they understood what was immoral. And the most common expressions of that were addressed by Jesus. Now here's the thing. Paul, on the other hand, is writing into a Gentile context. We, we, we get to Thessalonica and we see this is a Greco-Roman city. This is not a city with a Jewish heritage. This is not a city with a, even a serious Jewish influence. This is a Gentile place. It's a pagan place, right? So when Paul speaks of Pornea, both here and in other epistles to Gentile churches and Gentile cities, he defines it more specifically. He talks about lots of different kinds of sexual expression and sexual behavior that were common to the Gentile world. Okay? So we have to ask, what kinds of sexual immorality would the Thessalonians be thinking about when they read this? When Paul says abstain from sexual immorality, what, what, what was in their mind? What kind of sexual behavior was common to their Gentile way of life before coming to Christ? And what kinds of sexual behaviors or attitudes or whatever would have been difficult for them? Having been steeped in that culture, what would be difficult for them? What might they be struggling with to give up now that they are in Christ? So I want to give you a picture of what we know about Thessalonica and Greco-Roman attitudes and practices regarding sex and sexuality. Gentiles were far more approving of sexual licentiousness than were the Jews. Far more. Uh, for example, it was entirely socially acceptable for young men to have sexual relationships before marriage. That would not have been the case in Judea, right? But in, in the Gentile world, it was, it was entirely acceptable to have sex before marriage. In fact, it seems that it would have been considered unnatural or weird if they weren't doing that. Um, you may have heard of Cicero. We have a street named after him here in the city, right? Cicero was a Roman politician who lived during the first century B.C. And he, he actually spent time in Thessalonica during that time. And, and, and regarding this common practice of premarital sex, he was quoted as saying this. He said, let not pleasure always be forbidden. Let not desire and pleasure, or sorry, let desire and pleasure triumph sometimes even over reason further arguing that, that once a young man sort of got his fill of sexual promiscuity, kind of got it out of his system, he'd be better suited at that point than for domestic and public life. So in other words, what, 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 what he's saying is it's, it's good to sow your wild oats, right? Kind of like that's healthy for people. It's healthy for society. Get it out and, and do it while you can because it'll make you a, a more well-rounded member of society. And that was the commonly accepted philosophy of the day. Sex with household servants was very common, as was prostitution. It was expected. 
it was expected that both single men and married men would regularly avail themselves of those opportunities. Okay? Uh, for married men, having a mistress was practically the norm. The famous Greek statesman and orator Demosthenes says this, he writes this, and again, this is expressing the prevailing social opinion on this matter of, 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 of adultery. He says, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. And again, this was the commonly accepted philosophy of the day, right? Sexual pleasure, that's outside. Marriage is a, is, that's for kids and for taking care. But like, if you're going to have fun, you got to go out searching for it somewhere else. That was the predominant view. Um, Plutarch, a, a Greco-Roman writer, advised wives that they should not be angry if their husbands sought sexual pleasure with other women. I wonder if he was sort of like the dear Abby of the day, right? Uh, don't be, you know, it's fine. Let it go. Don't be angry if that were to happen. And, 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 you know, unfortunately for women, society didn't extend to them the same freedom to express themselves sexually without the fear of condemnation. It was somehow cool for the guys, but not cool for the gals. However, it's clear from, from what we can see in, in history that, that a lot of women happily took the risk anyway. So the, the sexual promiscuity was, was on both sides of the aisle. If you look at art and literature from the period, you, you see that sexuality was openly and regularly a part of everyday life. It's just, it's sort of everywhere. And not only were the aforementioned things accepted, but so were homosexuality, sex parties, orgies, even pedophilia. Pretty much all forms of sexual uh, experience, sexual expression were out in the open and were very socially acceptable. Okay? So it's not like Jew, uh, Judea. It's not like where Jesus was talking to. It's a very different context that Paul's speaking into. And finally, and perhaps most significantly, sex and sexuality were deeply tied into the worship of the culture. So the, the skylines of cities like Corinth and others were dominated by these temples to sexual goddesses usually, or gods like Aphrodite, and, and, and the worship, uh, the worship of, of people were to go in and, and have uh, sex with prostitutes as a worship experience because in that, um, that sort of eroticism, that, that, uh, that hormonal flow, that was a connection to uh, the, the deepest experiences of humanity and worship. It was a, it was a means to fully... Um, to fully be human in some ways, in, in their minds at least. So here's the bottom line. Sexual expression and, and freedom, and, I, and I, I put danger quotes around that, freedom. Sexual expression and freedom was socially normal in the Gentile world. And if that doesn't seem to, to shock you, it's probably because it's no different today. Right? That's kind of, that, you know, that sounds more like what we experienced than what I, what I explained earlier in Judea. Right? It's, it's, it's normal. Sex is everywhere. Right? And so we see these same kinds of, of expressions. Um, you know, common advice, uh, for, for, for young people in terms of finding a spouse is, of course, you know, move in together. You know, you wouldn't buy a car without taking it for a test drive, and those those kinds of ideas, right? Um, that that there's this idea that that sexual compatibility is is a is a bedrock, is a foundation for good marriage. And so, if you don't know beforehand, how how could you possibly enter into this, right? Or or the idea of of even sexuality and sexual expression being deeply tied into this to this worship experience. There's a sense in which again you're trying to you're they're tapping into uh, this, uh, this, this rush of feeling and hormone and, 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 and erotic expression as a means to feel something that is looked to give life. And I think about, you know, just the, the, the deep addictions to pornography, uh, the deep addictions to, to sexual expression in our own culture. And, and, and what are people doing? It's, it's like, it's like a place to run when you're looking for, 
You're looking for a, a life-giving source, right? Adultery, fornication, all these things are just they're normal for us. So we can identify with this. And, and so for the new believers in Thessalonica, here's the thing that Paul recognizes. It would have been challenging to transform their cultural norms and thinking about sex. And so we have to, we, we should approach this with that same uh, recognition. Just, just, just as true for many people, even Christians in our society today. It's, it's challenging to transform our cultural norms, the deeply ingrained thinking that we have about sex and sexuality when we come to know Christ. So let's move then into what Paul then says to them. If this is their context, what are Paul's exhortations for sexual holiness? Look at verse 3 again. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So what he's saying here, verse, verse 4 literally translated says this. It says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel. Okay, Which is, I think, a little graphic actually. I, Paul, Paul might just be intending to mean the innuendo that that sounds like. Don't let your body control you. You know, use, use your, use your, your, your right thinking here, not your body driven thinking. Um, the idea is that we're not to be consumed or controlled by our appetites. Like animals. Like mere animals. You know, this is, uh, maybe TMI, but we have a, we have a puppy. Um, and uh, we've been kind of waiting. We, we weren't, we weren't going to get the dog spayed until after she had a cycle because it's better for them, apparently. So anyway, we've been waiting. To, like, when's this going to happen, right? And so earlier this week, Christine takes Maisie, our dog, over to the dog park, which is something that she does on a daily basis. And usually the dogs just run around and play with each other. But this particular day, the minute she gets there, this male dog just comes running right up and takes over. And she thought, I wonder. And sure enough, the next day, the dog, our dog went into heat visibly, right? So, so, so the idea there is like, that's what animals do, right? I mean, that, that, there's instinct involved in that, but it's, it's, it's just appetite. It's like sniff out, smell out, opportunity, go get it, right? And Paul's like, that's not what we are. We're not animals. Control your body. Exercise dominion over your own body, your own vessel, right? Uh, you are not to be controlled by your passions or your feelings like, 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 like animals, but you're human beings who are created in the image of God. You're different. So his exhortation there is to exercise self-control. I, I find reading 1 Corinthians 6, which is a parallel passage, to be helpful here in fleshing out what Paul's trying to say. This is what he says there. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then he quotes this. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And he says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. When he says there, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, he's quoting a common cultural expression there. This is something that the Corinthians would have, would have kind of heard like as a joke, uh, commonly said in society. It's this attempt at humor to justify indulging in their sexual appetites. Hey, well, you know, when you're hungry, you gotta go get it. Right? And we hear that kind of talk in our own culture, in our society, right? Like it's just simply a need, like hunger that demands to be satisfied. But Paul's saying, no, this is a fleshly way of viewing our bodies, and including our, the sexual use of our bodies. Our bodies are meant for God's glory. And not only that, he says, God will judge this kind of sinful abuse of our bodies. Look at, again, 1 Thess 4, verse 6. He says that, that, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, this sexual immorality, because... 
The Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. What, what was told to them? Well, again, look at 1 Corinthians 6 up here on the screen, the parallel passage. This is, this is the same kind of language what he shares with the Corinthian church. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a solemn warning. And he says, don't be deceived, which is an important thing for him to say. Like, it's so easy for us to, to have, to have wrong thinking on this. It's so easy for us to buy lie. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swinders. None of them, he says, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. The, the difference between being identified with Adam and now being identified in Christ is this. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, to be sanctified and washed and justified in Jesus is to no longer look like these things that the flesh would do. And God takes it seriously. Eternal life is at stake. Back in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. That might be the most powerful sentence in the whole book. God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. In 1 Corinthians 6, again, similarly, Paul says, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take then the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Same thing was happening there. Again, that, that, that worship, that, that freedom to go out and, and to have this kind of adultery and prostitution. He says, no, never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The exhortation <coughs> excuse me, from last week, from the end of chapter 3, and the prayer there was that the Thessalonians would be found prepared. In other words, without regret at the coming of the Lord. And, and, the, and the exhortation again was positively stated there. So love one another. This week, that same idea and exhortation to be prepared, to be found ready, holy and blameless at the coming of the Lord, it's negatively stated. Abstain from sexual immorality. So as we did last week, I guess what I, I want to do to sort of close out is this. How do we turn the thou shalt not into a do this instead? If the exhortation here negatively stated is abstain from sexual immorality, then what is a biblical view of sex? And what's our hope? Well, we won't find the answer here fully in 1 Thessalonians. But if you look at verse 6 again of chapter 4, he says something important. He says, in all these things as we told you beforehand, so we clearly have this sense that Paul has instructed them already in this matter. This is a revisitation of what he's, he's already shared with them when he was there planting the church and making disciples and, and growing them in the gospel. So if we know that he said something to them, I think the, the, the best thing we can do is we got to look at what Paul has written to other Gentile believers in similar situations to, to get a sense of what he likely said to the Thessalonians. Because this teaching is consistent in the Gentile churches. So again, this is why 1 Corinthians 6 is helpful. And I want to reference again 
this passage that we already looked at. You not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, and this is a key sentence, the two will become one flesh. Paul makes reference here in his teaching on sexuality and biblical sex, he makes reference to Genesis 2 here. And it's interesting to note that both Paul and Jesus both do this when talking about sex, sexual immorality, and the sanctity of marriage. In Matthew chapter 19 and in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is teaching against porneia. He's talking about sexual immorality. Specifically, he's talking to the Pharisees about their, their tragic belief that it was okay to leave your wife for another woman. And his rebuke to them in that porneia is rooted in the creation account also in Genesis 1 and 2. This is what he says in Mark 10. He says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is key. What Jesus is doing here is fundamental to our understanding of God's design for sex in marriage. Okay? Genesis 1 and 2. Think about what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. You have, in the creation account, you have God saying, let us make man in our image. Right? Let us make man in our image. Which is an interesting thing because there's plural language there. Let us. God's referring to Himself in plural. So we don't, we don't have a lot of clues yet in Genesis about what that means. We see, we see God spoke. We see the Spirit hovering over the water. But we don't, we don't have a full picture of the Trinity. But we do have at least this knowledge. God exists in relationship. Right? So let us create mankind in our own image. And then He says, in male and female, He created them. In the image of God, He made them. So there's something about the creation of male and female, which is Jesus references here in Mark 10. From the beginning, God made them male and female. Something significant about that in the expression of the image of God. And I think we just already tipped out a little bit of what that is. Within male and female, and this idea that the two of them would together become one flesh, we see distinction and unity distinction yet oneness which is would we know a picture of what god is like right and then what does he say to them after the creation he gives them a mandate he says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it why that mandate well if god has created them specifically and not the animals and not anybody else but 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 mankind male and female in that image His mandate to them is to fill the world with that image. And He gives them a mandate that involves something that images Him. Creative. uh, A creative act. Multiply. Right? So we have image. We have creation in that image. And then at the end of chapter 2, we see the, 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 the union there, he says, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, be united to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Which again is a picture of that image of God. So there's something significant about, we see marriage there, we see sex there, and we see the created purpose of them is to image God in His likeness, in His creative ability, and in his union. And then, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 5, and he adds another key understanding for sex and marriage. Paul says, that's not the right verse. Alright, let me read it to you. I didn't copy and paste that right. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he's quoting again. Genesis 2. And he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
So he's now added a new layer to this with the revelation of Jesus and the mission and the ministry of Jesus. He's saying marriage not only images God in His likeness and in His unity and His creative ability, but also in the love that it shows in that covenant relationship that shows the world something about what Jesus is like for His people. He calls the church His bride. So, if you understand what Paul, why Paul and Jesus make it so important to, to point back to Genesis 1 and 2 in that creation, you get a sense of why sexual immorality matters so much to God. This is so important. Any sexual activity outside of God's design in creation then for sex within the marriage covenant of a man and a woman is then a, what? A denial and a twisting of His image. It's a veiling of His glory in mankind and a denial of a key picture of the gospel in the world. So is, this, is this a big deal? Those are big deals. Those aren't secondary issues. They're fundamental to who God is and how He's revealed in the world. What the gospel is and how it's revealed in the world. That's why it matters to God. So with that said, I think it's for this reason that, that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. Because he knows that they, they, don't, they, they don't have that foundation. They don't have that, that knowledge. They're, they're coming out of a, a society that has a completely different worldview. And he, it's, it, I'm sure it's plainly obvious to him that this teaching for those who have been shaped by the prevailing secular, sexualized culture is hard teaching. And it's hard for us. And so here's the... Here's the encouragement I want to give to you because it comes from Jesus and His encouragement to us. The Gospel involves enormous cost. But it also involves enormous blessing for everyone. The Gospel is costly for each of us because the teaching of Jesus is is clear that, that each of us, because of our universal identification with Adam, each of us is deeply and fundamentally sinful and broken. All of us. Jesus says in Mark 8, man, I, I must have messed up my copy and paste. Doggone it. Alright, well, Mark 8, sorry. You have to trust me that I'm reading this right. I am. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. In other words, the call to follow Christ is a call to give up who we think we are. If anyone would follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. It is a call to give up who we think we are. And this is where sexual sin is so, is so gripping. Because we have been taught to believe that our sexuality and our sexual expression defines us. But I want to challenge that belief with a truth that I hope will be liberating to any of us who've bought into that lie. And this is why I spent some time talking about Adam and Jesus. The first Adam, the second Adam. The old humanity and the new humanity. Because I think one of the things that, that's so wrong about the way that we define humanity is that we define humanity by looking at ourselves. We define it according to who we are, how we think, how we live, right? It, that, that's a natural thing for us to do. But it's, it's, it's wholly wrong because when we're doing that, all we're doing is we're identifying humanity in the image of the broken picture of Adam. Jesus in the incarnation comes as the second Adam, as the, the new way to be human. The, he, he was what Adam was not. He was perfect in His humanity and in His divinity. He was without sin. So the bottom line is this. If you want to know what humanity in its purest and truest form looks like, you can't look at you 
or anyone else, you got to look at Jesus because Jesus is the bar. He's the standard of humanity, of true humanity. If that's true, then think about this for just a minute. Jesus, in His purest expression of what it means to be fully human, was in no way whatsoever defined by His sexuality. He wasn't married. He wasn't sexually active. He wasn't dating, right? He was not defined by his sexuality. Does that mean he wasn't a sexual being? He was human. He had all that you have in that regard, but he wasn't in any way guided by or defined by the expression of that part of his humanity. And if that's true of Jesus in the purest expression of what it means to be human, it's got to be true for us as well. You're not defined in your humanity by your sexuality. And I say that as a, as a knowing that you know only the Holy Spirit can truly free us from that kind of bondage to a wrong definition of who we are. But I at least want you to hear that and believe that that's that that's true and possible. You don't have to be defined by your sexuality. This is a hard topic, and I'm 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 sure that there's three types of responses likely present in the room today, and I want to address all three. The first one is, there are some who might feel that I've only been preaching this morning to everybody else. Thinking themselves justified and righteous in sexual purity simply on the basis that I'm straight and I'm married. And I want to say the Gospel has a word for you. Second group of people would be those who are feeling condemned by what's been said this morning. Maybe by the, the presence of, of current or past sexual sin, sins committed. And to hear this is just another dagger. And I want to say that the Gospel also has a word for you this morning. And then the third is perhaps there are those who feel upset by what's been said this morning. Thinking that a biblical view, a biblical teaching on sex is offensive, even harmful, and opposed to your happiness. And I want to say the Gospel has a word for you as well. So let me address the first group. To those who might feel that I've been only preaching this morning to everybody else. Um, thinking themselves justified and righteous in sexual purity simply on the basis that you're straight and married. Let me say this, and I want to say this humbly but, but, but sternly. You're in a dangerous place of self-deception. First, I would remind you that much of the teaching of Jesus and Paul in the New Testament on porneia is aimed at those who are married. And secondly, I would say this, marriage alone is not the antidote to sexual immorality. Jesus didn't come, die, and resurrect to make us straight and married. He came to make us holy, like Himself. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. All are in need of gospel transformation. So I want to say this to, to, to you. I'm going to say this to myself. I want to say this to all of us. If you think that the gospel has nothing to say to you in regard to your sexual brokenness because you think yourself to be sexually pure, you're deceived about the depravity of your heart. And you've believed a gospel that's not this gospel. Self-righteousness is just as deserving of the wrath of God as any sexual immorality. And in fact, I would say they're actually the same thing. And many Christians have failed in this regard. So, so if we can humbly recognize that, let's repent and be humbled 
Let's be aware of our deep need for the grace of God, knowing that the, the, the repentance and humility that leads to salvation is the repentance that admits this. I'm the worst sinner I know. Secondly, I want to say something to those who may be feeling condemned by what has been said this morning. Feeling like you are without hope because of past or present sexual sins committed. And to you, I want to ask to revisit again 1 Corinthians 6. And I hope I didn't mess this slide up. How do I go back here, Yaz? Can you put up that 1 Corinthians 6, 15 to 20 slide? Can you see it? Thank you. Revisit this with me. That's not the one I want, yes. I got the wrong one. Hang on, hang on. Let me tell you which one I want. It's 1 Corinthians 6, but it's the uh, 9 through 11, sorry. 9 through 11. Thank you. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, that, that part you heard, I know. And that part stung, I know. But this underlined portion is so good and true for those of us in Christ. Such were some of you. Were. Not are. Were. You in Christ are justified. And you're being sanctified. And the evidence of that sanctification isn't necessarily that you've completely conquered your sin, it's that you fight it. It's that it breaks you. It's that you come to the foot of the cross and you confess it and you say, Jesus, help me. And this is His good word to you. That's not who you are anymore. Such were some of you. You were washed. You're sanctified justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. So if you're feeling condemned this morning, let me just point you back to Romans 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does it mean that maybe you have some work to do? Does it mean that you have, to, you have some repentance that needs to, 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 to come forth yet? It might, but, but here's the thing. You can do it in confidence. Because the Gospel is bigger than your sin. The cross of Christ is effective to put your sin to death and to wash you in Christ. So, come to Him. Come to Him. Don't be afraid of condemnation. And lastly, I want to address those who may be here this morning who feel upset by what's been shared this morning, thinking again that a biblical teaching on sex is offensive and, and even harmful or opposed to my happiness. And I just want to challenge you to consider which is really harmful. I, I'm just going to try to reason with you a little bit on this, but I want to challenge you. What's really harmful? The Bible's teaching or that of our culture? See, a common pushback you'll hear is, is this, and I've heard this. Why does God, or why does the church, why, why do you care about who I sleep with? And I think the most appropriate answer is to turn that question back on the one who asks it and say, why do you care so much about who you sleep with? Why is that where you draw the line and object to following God. I'm borrowing from, from Sam Albury, who I think is really instructive on this. He says this, he says, it is in fact our culture that has made sex into an idol and says, if your sex life doesn't work out, then your life hasn't worked out. It's not God or the church, but culture that, that's, that's, that's putting the stakes up that high. Which, which is the most likely viewpoint then to be harmful? The perspective that says, sex is everything, and therefore if I'm denied sex, I'm denied my happiness and life is not worth living. Or the biblical perspective that says, 
Sex is a wonderful gift from God, but it's no substitute for the giver. God is not the one who says that a lack of sexual fulfillment is a lack of human fulfillment. And Jesus is the living, breathing proof of that. I read a quote from Tim Keller on Twitter actually this week that I thought was really interesting and really good. He says, when we undervalue sex, we undervalue sex, we dehumanize others. When we overvalue sex, we dehumanize ourselves. Which, which I think means this. When we undervalue sex and we dehumanize others because we treat them like objects to be consumed, right? When we overvalue sex, we dehumanize ourselves because we treat them like idols. We treat sex like an idol. And idolatry is dehumanizing because it substitutes the gift for the giver and sets us up to look in vain, in vain, for ultimate fulfillment in non-ultimate things. Following Jesus is costly. The demand to follow Christ is a demand to deny ourselves and who we think about ourselves and who we think we are and to take up our cross and to follow Him with the belief and the trust that the new humanity that He provides us is better. Because it's reflective of the humanity that our Creator intended. And I want to just close with this. I'll point you to to Mark 10. I, I don't have it up on the screen anyway. Peter it says to Jesus, and I'm not sure how to, how, to, how to read the tone in this. It says, he says, see, we've left everything and followed you. Which either could be him saying, see, Jesus, we left everything and followed you. Or it might be him saying, uh, we've left everything and followed you. Is this worth it? <laughs> and this is how Jesus responded. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Think about what's being said there. Peter's saying, this is costly. We've left everything to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus' response to that is interesting in that he talks about what was given up primarily in terms of relationships. You've left your brothers and sisters and mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. There's been relational costs to you. And acknowledging that, he says, but you'll receive in the following me a hundredfold now in this time relationships. In other words, it's a difficult thing for a Thessalonian or a 21st century American to think, if my identity has been so wrapped up in, in my relationships and in my sexual expression within those relationships and even my sexual identity somehow wrapped up in how my relationships function and the call to follow Jesus is to say, that can't define me anymore. I've got to, I've got to give up those idols. That's hard. But Jesus says, no, I have relationships for you even now this isn't just wait till you get to heaven and grit it out until then even now in this time you'll receive in me family which is the church which is which is which are relationships that that are that are that are designed by God to provide the the depth and the the love and the, the care and the fulfillment that humanity longs for. And in the age to come, eternal life. 
Following Jesus is immensely costly, but, but following Jesus is worth it. We could say more. I've said plenty. If you want to talk more about this, pray about it, please do. Find me. I'd, I'd be happy to. Let's pray. Father, I thank You, Lord, that, that You search us and know us. And I thank You, Lord, that You came to rescue us from the empty idols of our former way of living. Paul says here, don't be driven by the passions and the lusts of the flesh like those who do not know God. To know You is to not be driven by that because we're driven now by true life. So help us to know You, God. Help us to find in You our full satisfaction and joy. Help us to find in You our, our true humanity. And help us, Lord, as Your people to abstain from sexual immorality. I pray that the gripping sin the gripping sin of sexual immorality that, that has affected so many, if even us in this room, Lord, that You would break it by the power of the Gospel and the love of Christ. I pray that You'd set our affections on something so much more ultimate than just our passions. And I pray that You would meet, especially those of us who feel like we have to give up something that's so ingrained in who we are and it's, it's the hardest thing we'll ever do I pray that You'll meet us in that moment and give us the strength and the grace to see and believe that You indeed are better and You're worth following even though we take up a cross and die to ourselves to do it. I consider all that I have gained to be loss and rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. May we say that experientially with confidence. Thank You for making us holy. Thank You for sanctifying Your people. May we excel still more and more. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.